Well, there was a little jockeying for position on Friday as month-end approached. For the UK and the US, that work had to be done on Friday because today, the last day of the month, they're actually on holiday. It's Memorial Day in the United States. And in the UK, it's a national holiday to celebrate Boris Johnson's latest wedding. Only kidding, but you get the idea. It's a fairly quiet start to the week, is basically what I'm saying. But it will be a fairly busy week later on. So we'll talk about that. It's Monday, the 31st of May, 2021. It's the morning call from NAB. Good morning. Well, the US dollar was up a little on Friday, less than 0.1% though on the DXY, but almost a half percent fall on the Aussie dollar. US equities nudged ever so slightly higher at the end of the week last week, but over the uh, week the Nasdaq was up about 2%, which is not as much as the ASX 200, which gained 2.1%, or even the Shanghai Composite that was up 3.3% over the week last week. We also saw the yuan strengthening last week as well, uh, and yet we haven't seen uh, the expected rise in the Aussie dollar, which often happens when we see the Chinese currency rising. On the Bond markets, 10-year treasuries, UK gilts and 10-year bond yields all down one to one and a half basis points, whereas Aussie 10 years up six basis points to 1.68%. And iron ore losing ground on Friday, down 0.3%, down about 1.6% over the week. And on oil, well, Brent was up on Friday, but not quite hitting the $70 a barrel market. It's had a few goes at that over the last few weeks. It seems when it gets there, it backs away fairly sharply. Uh, Ray Atrell is NAB's head of FX strategy, and it seems FX it was the only story really on Friday, wasn't it? And as I said in the introduction, a lot of that month end related, it seems to be. It seems to be. Morning, Phil. Yes. But uh, no, certainly. If, but if you looked at foreign exchange rates at the end of the New York day on Friday compared to where they started in our time zone, you'd say, well, nothing to see here, which also was by and large the story in equities and bonds, wasn't it? But, um, but then if you sort of put the sites in and have a look at a lot of the intraday volatility, there was actually some quite strong moves where the US dollar essentially was strong. Uh, rose about half a percent against just about every currency during the, um, you know, during the European morning and afternoon leading up to what's known as the 4 p.m. London fix, which is when a lot of, um, you know, asset managers, etc., um, you know, want orders executed relating to their um, their hedging strategies, effectively. And what we saw was very, very strong U.S. dollar demand that drove the likes of the euro down half a cent. It drove the Aussie down half a percent, along with all other currencies. Um, um, you know, quite why that's the case, we don't know. But we, I mean, European stocks, for example, had a very strong month. So there would have been a need from some asset managers to, to actually have to sell a bit more euro to keep their hedge ratios constant. It's a little bit convoluted this time of the morning, but uh, that's what happens. And because, as you say, the US and the UK have their holidays today, Friday was effectively month end when a lot of this flow actually goes through the market. And as soon as you know we passed that, that, that 4 p.m. fixed window, you know, we saw a quite significant reversal of a lot of those moves. So, you know, the message is that the weakness that we saw in currencies during the day, including the Aussie, doesn't really have a sort of a, a big fundamental driver or anything other than a short-term driver. So we don't think we should read anything too profound into those moves. Yeah, and uh, those new retail investors are adding quite a bit of volatility as well, aren't they? So GameStop, remember, remember them? Uh, they went up 43% last week before losing 13% of it on Friday. I'm not sure if it's coincidence that Bitcoin, you know, is on the way down as well. So maybe they're looking for somewhere else to uh, put their money. But there's a lot of people losing money and a lot of people making money out of all of this volatility, that's for sure, isn't it? But, uh, well, yes, but uh, anyway, an old uh, an old buffer like me still struggling to get the head around, you know, Bitcoin 
day trading and and and, uh, and all the Reddit crowd, etc. But um, yeah. in some of the activity, and, and on a more serious point, one of the things that we have been noting, particularly with respect to cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in, in particular, is that the correlation between, uh, say, Bitcoin and other asset classes. So if you look at sort of equities in particular, it does seem that when risk sentiment is either rising or falling, um, you know, we're seeing sort of Bitcoin move in the same direction. So it has become another sort of risk on risk off indicator, mm. if you like. And the idea that this is an alternative, um, you know, asset class that is uncorrelated with other markets is uh, that that uh, uh, justification, if you like, for wanting to invest in away. things like crypto is starting yeah. to wear thin. Yeah, yeah. So let's have a look at some of the numbers uh, from uh, the US on Friday. So core PCE index, uh, that reading uh, was up. But it was expected, wasn't it? So core PC went from 1.9% to 3.1%, slightly ahead of market consensus, but not a great deal. And uh, not much market reaction. In fact, 10-year Treasury yields fell a little, didn't they, on, the, on this news? Well, that's right. I think you just have to go back to the, um, you know, to the CPI shock, if that's what you want to call it, yeah. that we had a couple of weeks ago. So I think the market was already sort of inured to, uh, mm. to a very strong number. That said, it was a couple of tenths of a percent stronger than expected, 3.1, uh, which is its highest rate since 1992 and was expected to be 2.9, I think. Um, you know, but the underlying sort of drivers very similar to the CPI. So these big uh, rises in things like used car prices, which were up 10% on the month, airline fares, hotel room costs, car rental costs, all the things that, um, you know, obviously benefiting from uh, obviously still reluctance to use public transport is driving used car prices. In fact, uh, my old boss um, was emailing me on the weekend saying that the used car that he bought 12 months ago in, in New York, his dealer phoned him up and offered him, I think, 10% more than he paid for it a year later. So uh, yeah. there's evidence of just how, uh, you know, just how much the uh, sort of pandemic and the reluctance to use public transport is showing up. Plus, of course, all the uh, supply chain disruptions right. that are impacting new cars and the chip shortages, etc. It's, um, so it's all temporary, though, isn't it? So if you look at the University of Michigan, the, the Consumer Sentiment Index, which which is also out there. I mean, their inflation expectations looking ahead is, is actually pointing downwards. Well, they're at 3%. So we had the preliminary University of Michigan and that five to 10 year expect, um, inflation expectations is one. I remember Janet Yellen used to cite that, um, you know, ad nausea almost as one side of inflation expectations up to 3%, but that was down from the preliminary reading of 3.1. Um, you know, and it's only back to where it was in sort of 2011. So it, you know, it, on, on the chart, it looks as though inflation expectations are surging but if you look at it in a sort of a longer term historical context, they're not that uh, not that alarming. So, and I do think Fed officials, obviously, this whole raging debate about transitory or not, you know, we are seeing Fed mm. officials talking more to inflation expectations, knowing that it's going to be months or even quarters before we know from the hard numbers whether it is temporary or not. And while inflation expectations, you know, remain relatively contained, albeit somewhat elevated. And I think that's going to play to the uh, you know the official view that uh, we still think that this inflation backup is going to be temporary or transitory. So I'm surprised there's not more debate about it as well as inflation, but also the question about how quickly economies really are going to come bouncing back. Are they? Is, is it going to be as fast as people anticipate? So we had the U.S. personal income and spending numbers on Friday, both a bit lower than anticipated. Now you can say that that is because you know it was influenced by the fact that there were paychecks in March. Uh, so, uh, so, so that hit the March number. So, of course, April's number uh, in terms of uh, consumer spending, for example, 
uh, is you know lower. But then wasn't the idea that it wasn't just a one-month jolt, that it would actually be kick-starting the economy? You'd hope it would actually keep on increasing. Yes, well, things like, I mean, obviously, most people got their stimulus checks in the US in March, that $1,400 check. And that's why income was up, what, 13% in April. There's a little bit of residual paying coming through in April. But on a month-on-month basis, that obviously leads to a sharp drop. But, um, excuse me, that said, we do know that... um, you know, a lot of this money hasn't yet been spent. So, you know, as economies hopefully fully reopen, there's still a lot of pent up demand that will show through. But um, but yes, I mean, that's the other, you know, the transitory or otherwise inflation debate. You also have to look at it through, you know, how much is, is, is consumer spending in particular still being driven, you know, by one off um, stimulus payments. And once they sort of fall out, if you like, um, or are spent, are we still going to see the consumer side of the economy, you know, in the sort of rude health that it that it looks to be at the moment? So it is a, certainly a valid debate. But um, and then on the budget side of things, a lot of you know, on Friday we had Joe Biden, you know, outlining his six trillion dollar um, spending plans, basically, which uh, obviously includes his sort of American jobs plan, which is infrastructure heavy, and his American families plan to do with preschool, sort of kindergarten and parental leave, etc. But but if you actually look at what the budget deficit will be doing for the economy, what we call the, the fiscal stimulus, it's actually much smaller in 2022 onwards than it was in 2021 because of the 1.9 trillion COVID stimulus. So fiscal policy that has, you know, has been the big driver of the rise in household incomes, um, you know, will actually not be nearly as supportive. Mm. So um, yes, it's not not a question for today, but I think it is one as, as we go further yeah. through the year. And uh, obviously, we know it's still going to be a long time before international borders reopen. And, you know, large chunks of the economy are not going to be returning to normal for a long time. And is he going to get his six trillion? And, uh, you know, a a chunk of that was because, I mean, Mitch McConnell is saying it's going to drown American families in debt, deficits and and inflation, he thinks. Uh, But also, you know, the it's going to be paid for part of it by this 28 percent corporate tax. But I don't think there's any chance that that's going to happen. Is that Democrats? uh, Democrats are opposing it or suggesting it should be a bit lower anyway. Well, that's right. I mean, so do do remember that, um, you know, the one point nine trillion stimulus plan this year got through via the process of what's called reconciliation, which meant that it mm. didn't require the support of, of any Republicans, which of course didn't support it. And you're right that uh, certainly one or two, Joe mentioned being the most high profile um, you know, Democrat senator who was opposed to the scale of these uh, spending. But, um, you know, he may well be that, um, you know, he's not saying that we shouldn't be doing anything, just that he's a little uncomfortable with the size of it. So, you know, there is still a good chance that between now and uh, particularly with a view to the midterm U.S. elections next year, where there's a risk that the Democrats lose control of one or other of the houses, that they're going to go hell for leather to try and get something through through reconciliation if the Republicans won't play ball. And certainly, as you say, on the tax rise side of the equation, um, you know, it's very unlikely that anything will come to the party. So a quiet day today because of the public holiday in the UK and the US, but we do get the official manufacturing and services PMIs for China. Uh, so I get this is going to be important because it's going to give us an idea of how, how well the domestic economy is going in China, which is obviously going to be a, a, a key question for Australia. No, absolutely. And uh, although we sort of tend to focus on the, the manufacturing numbers because of the read-through to, to global PMIs and global activity, if we go back a couple of weeks to the April China activity numbers, you know, the concern is that the Chinese consumer um, hasn't come back with anything like the sort of alacrity, you know, relative to mm. the industrial side of the economy, exports, etc. So, so actually, I think that services reading will be uh, will be the more important one. We're looking for very small increases in both 
manufacturing and, uh, and services. So you know, I think that'll be the focal point today. We've also got the final uh, ANZ New Zealand Business Outlook Survey. We get the credit numbers down here as well. So, um, but I think that you know the, the big events of the week. We've got the RBA tomorrow. We've got GDP. We've got the uh, US payrolls cut numbers on Friday, for example, in that G7 meeting. So lots of sort of big ticket items to look forward to later in the week. There we are. I've, you've just ticked off all the things I had to say at the end. So you've done that for me. Uh, good to talk. We'll catch you again soon, Ray. Thank you. Well, done. thanks, Phil. Not sure I like it when he covers it all off like that so well because it makes me think, why am I here? We just need to fire the starting pistol and Ray starts talking for 10 minutes or so. Uh, But I will be back tomorrow morning. I'm Phil Dobby for NAV. I'll see you then.